Nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Coming up on the Money Beat podcast, investing on Wall Street is being revolutionized. How it will affect you, how it should benefit you. Also, it is still bank earnings season. Bank of America was out with their numbers on Monday. What did we learn about it? And what does it tell us about what will come later this week when Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs report earnings? This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Money Bee Podcast. Paul and Steve here in the studio, joined today by Ant Ferguson and Chris Dietrich. And the reason we have asked you two folks to be in and the reason we want you to listen today is because people, I have to tell you, there is a revolution going on on Wall Street. You may be aware of this. You may not be aware of this. But there is a big, uh, essentially a... a a industry-defining change going on on Wall Street. If you go to WSJ.com today, you will see the series we have done on this. This is Wall Street's do-nothing investment revolution. Uh, and basically, you can boil this down to the fact that passive investing is overtaking active investing. This is a major shift. Uh, and you wrote a story with Jason Zweig. So one of the key stories in this series. And Chris, you were writing about this too. So let's just jump right in. And what is what is going on here? Um, well, you know, investors have been express uh, individual investors have been expressing an interest in passive for some time, and, and it's clear that uh, the flows of money into mutual funds and exchange traded funds have been going to passive um, for some time. But you know, a lot of what's new here is the fact that pension funds and endowments, four hundred one k retirement plans are really starting to um, express a very strong interest in, in, in passive and a strong preference for passive um, for many reasons um, that have a lot to do with, with costs and performance, which is you know the same reasons why individuals are choosing um, passive investments. But for the institutional investors, there are other pressures at play as well that they're responding to including government regulations, including lawsuits, in particular in the 401k arena, and including just the, you know, the vast amount of data that, that these institutional investors have at their fingertips to make decisions, which you know, really is overwhelmingly in favor of yeah, passive. Yeah, that, that's got to be a big piece of it, right? I mean, that this whole um, focus on, on fees and management fees and knowing exactly what your management fees are which I think is a change from the way it used to be. I mean, you know, mutual funds and ETFs are not exactly new. Right, exactly. Right. No, so it's, it, I mean, there are, in, in particular, if you look at the Labor Department in the last couple of years, there's been several rulings that have been implicitly um, endorsing passive mm -hmm. funds and index funds in particular and low cost, which, you know, is, is a huge advantage with, um, with passive. Yeah. And another key advantage, which I think touches exactly on what Anne has said, is you know, the transparency that's associated with an index, you know, it's in it. It's very much more clear what, you know, you're paying in terms of an expense ratio. And that is also appealing. Um, you, you know, for instance, when um, your active manager is lagging this index, the, you know, the ubiquitous S&P S &P 500, there's a nice anecdote actually in your story today where, you know, somebody who had been an adherent of, um, actively managed funds, you know, just sees this perpetual lagging in the recovery that we've seen since 2008. And this, this idea that I, you know, what, what am I, what am I doing in here? I'm paying 
more than I necess- you know more than I have to, and I'm not even beating the market. Right, you're yeah. paying more for something that's unpredictable, really. I thought one of the interesting stats from the story was just, you know, over the decade ended, you know, this June, between 71 percent and 93 percent of active U.S. stock mutual funds. Uh, depending on the type of TV, that closed or underperformed the index funds they are trying to beat. I mean, that's a pre- that pretty much sets up that this isn't just fees. This is also performance. Yeah, right. Exactly. That the, the, these, these the, the deficit or the difference in fees can compound over time, and that alone can make up a huge performance gap. And we've touched a lot on the and like you said, none of these trends are necessarily new. But when you really look into the the fund flows, the rotation that you're seeing from active to passive. I, I'm a Morningstar analyst earlier this year called it flow Mageddon. I mean, we're talking right, <laughs> you know, we're talking a trillion dollar shift since the financial crisis into just U.S. stock uh, exchange yeah. traded funds. I mean, it's really accelerating. It's really crescendoing. Um, and, you know, Black, like BlackRock reports earnings tomorrow for years, they've been talking about how their goals from now on are really selling these exchange traded funds to, to pension funds, to insurance companies. So, you know, exchange-traded funds now are not just the sort of tools for for hedge funds or for sort of retail uh, investors or advisors. They're going to be sort of the core positions for these, you know, massive institutional investors. And that's sort of what people see driving, you know. I, there's a PwC uh, consulting firm that says ETF assets could triple by 2021. So, I mean, we're wow. the numbers are pretty staggering. Yeah. Well, now, we oftentimes also talk about, like, ETFs versus mutual funds and the impact that is, it's having on the mutual fund industry, but how much of this is also impacting, you know, the hedge funds, and you know, who have been known to collect very rich fees and have not been performing very well of late. Yeah, no, I, I think that that hedge funds have definitely been feeling the pain from, uh, you know, from the comparison. If I, I spoke to, um, this didn't make it into the story, but I spoke to somebody who is in charge of um, the Illinois Board of. Uh, investments and they oversee for um, the both the pension fund and the 401k fund for state employees and um, they've shifted a huge amount of money out of hedge funds recently and they've switched in, into index funds because they're paying a huge amount of fees and they're not getting the performance that they expected. Um, hedge funds have been lagging since 2009. Hedge funds have been lagging the market. You know, one of the things I thought was really interesting in the story. One of the anecdote. One of the folks you interviewed. Was uh, this guy John Skajervum? Oh, Shervum. Shervum? <laughs> I knew I was going to mispronounce that name. It was, it was very unusual. But but the thing I thought was interesting, so, so he's 54 years old. He's chief investment officer of Oregon State Treasury. And it was even more than what he said to you guys was the, the, the tone of what he was talking about. So just almost just so dismissive of the idea of people who sit around and actually try to pick stocks and you know he, he he's all about the data he just wants the data right and i was just wondering what does this do to the culture on wall street because the the idea on wall street forever has been the guy that can beat the market is the master of the universe you know the the the, the sherman mccoy bonfire of vanities that that figure is so mythic on wall street and this guy is like i, I don't care about that at all just show me the data how big is the sort of mindset change that we're seeing here? Well, I mean, I think I think it's huge, you know, especially when you consider, like you said, the culture of Wall Street, um, just that people are much more mindful of where the performance is. And, um, and you know, you can see this in, in where the, the flows are going. And you can see that, you know, companies like Vanguard and companies like BlackRock are really ascendant now in terms of, um, of, of where that, yeah. the money's going. 
Yeah, and, and it gets back to the point you made earlier just about data. There's so much – there is more access to data on so many different levels now than you had, in, you know, certainly 20, 30 years ago. Uh, that alone is driving some of this change, I think. Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And, you know, I spoke to – it was a very interesting conversation with um, an active – shop, a mutual fund shop, Cohen and Steers, and they're very niche kind of oriented. And they, you know, they came out with a shareholder note, a letter to shareholders about nine months ago saying, you know, that that the industry is really changing and we need to wake up and recognize this. And, you know, companies, uh, active managers that don't make changes are going to be headed for the dustbin of history along with Blockbuster. And and it it was a really kind of damning shareholder letter, um, you know, they themselves feel that they are sort of making changes to survive, and one of which is to focus on a niche that isn't um, so um, so efficient in terms of the market. So that, you know, they, they were sort of sounding a call to active managers everywhere to, to make changes. And, wow. Yeah. yeah. And you'll hear that, you know, a, a lot from different advisors that you talk to or um, other folks when you talk about what are you talking about when you're trying to select an, act, a, 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 an active manager. This idea that you're going to have a stock picker who picks and beats the S&P 500 with those tools is is gone. But, I mean, there are there are folks who say, like, boots on the ground, doing research in emerging markets or some of these other sort of niche corners, there's still value there. And some of the, you know, performance that's beating benchmarks is still there. But you're exactly right that this, this idea that um, – S&P 500 big cap stock pickers, the Peter Lynch's <laughs> of the world. Are that, gonna... that was exactly going to be my next question. Is it is the, the days of the Peter Lynch's yeah. and the Bill Miller's, Bill Miller, right. you know, are they over? Well, certainly when it comes to, you know, large cap U.S. stocks in particular and, and de- developed markets, I, I think it prob- they probably are. I think that's exactly right. I mean, an interesting thing when you speak of the data that's available now, one uh, sort of item that caught my eye recently was this there was a quantitative report from from one of the brokerages that showed that even the flows that we're seeing the big outflows from mutual funds seems actually to be a headwind for even some of these big cap stocks as the idea here is that as the redemptions as active managers are forced to sell some of their favorite holdings it's actually hitting the stocks in some ways so that the sort of the item here was that those stocks in the S&P 500 that are least owned uh, are actually beating by a long shot in recent years those stocks that are most heavily owned, stocks like Activision, um, which is a favorite of uh, Will Danoff and Contrafund. You know, so even even the fact that these active managers are piling into certain stocks could actually be affecting the performance of said stocks. So it's like uh, pretty amazing Im- implications that are sort of rippling across the industry here. Hmm. Yeah, I think we're... Is that it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> I mean, that's... All right. Well, uh, Anne, thank you for coming in. Oh, you're welcome. Everyone, go to WSJ.com. We have a large series, a bunch of stories in there. I th- is there going to be more during the week, or did we put the yeah, no, package this, out So, yeah, this is uh, the kickoff of you know WSJ's big active passive. Uh, I think it's called The Passivist yeah. um, mm-hmm. is the name of the series, and it will be rolling out throughout the week. Excellent. All right. And, Chris, thank you very much. Folks, don't go away. We will be right back after this message. Uh, More to digest on the bank earnings front. So we'll be talking about that next. This message is brought to you by Nuveen. Nuveen has provided investment excellence for 125 years. A lot has changed, but one thing that remains constant, including the different types of durable income in portfolios, can help investors meet their goals. With expertise across income and alternatives, Nuveen continues to expand its capabilities while maintaining its legacy as a leading investment manager. 
Visit Nuveen.com to learn more. Investing involves risk. Loss of principal is possible. Hey, this is Stephen Perlberg from the WSJ Media Mix podcast. Are you interested in the biggest changes in the media and advertising business from Facebook to Snapchat? Tune into the WSJ Media Mix podcast for interviews with some of the biggest names in media, from Gawker CEO Nick Denton to Turner President David Levy. For more, check us out at wsj.com slash podcasts. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Money Beat Podcast. Paul and Steve here in the studio. And folks, look, don't forget, for more great podcasts, check us out at wsj.com slash podcasts. A lot to offer you out there. We've got Your Money Matters, the free-for-all, speakeasy, heard on the street, what's news, WSJ Opinion. You can follow us on Twitter. We are at WSJ Podcasts. And you can follow us. You can become a subscriber we're on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, your Google Play Music app. You can get Money Beat and everything else you want, everything you would need for all your podcasting needs. Uh, we can handle for you. We can help you with that. Now, we were talking before about the uh, passive versus active revolution on Wall Street. M- much less uh, 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 era-defining but still important. It is still bank earnings season. Bank of America was out today. We had those banks on Friday. We have more coming up later this week to, to rip through all of this. Peter Rudiger and Liz Hoffman are here with us. Welcome to both of you. Thanks, Thanks Paul. Very nice. Very, very well done. Very well done. Uh, let's talk. Who wants to Who wants to explain to me what Bank of America did today that was good that I should be concerned about? Uh, I'll take that. All right. Um, so B of A reported a lot of the same trends, Paul, that we saw on Friday from Citigroup and J.P. Morgan, which was a great quarter for Wall Street. So mm-hmm. trading, especially bond trading, was up in a way that it hadn't been. I think Bank of America said it was its best third quarter in five years. Um, and the reason that's important is for the past few quarters. Um, Wall Street's really been mired in kind of a trading slump, and people were worried that, you know, for maybe the fifth or sixth consecutive year, trading revenue across the board would be down. And that's a big deal because this is the largest single line item in a lot of banks' fee income. And when that goes away, a lot of the returns that analysts and investors are hoping for go away too. So what we saw this this quarter was a handful of macroeconomic events that really drove more activity. Mm-hmm. You had the Brexit fallout in the U.K. You had a lot of central banks from the ECB and the Fed, you know, talking about changing policy, which led a lot of activity. And then in the U.S., you had some reform of the money market funds, which drove bond trading. So all this is to say that these are events that can't necessarily be counted on for the future, um, which is why analysts were a little skeptical that some of these gains could be held on to on the call today with Chief Executive yeah. Brian Moynihan, BFA. Yeah, it was, I mean, the, the Brexit vote was the end of June, and then you had the rally afterwards. But was that all? Did that bleed? I can't remember. I guess it did. I just don't recall it really bleeding into the third quarter like that. You know, you had a lot of people rebalance their their portfolios ahead of the vote, depending on where they thought it would come mm-hmm. out. Um, and actually, that, that last week of June was was very good for, as you say, most banks' second quarters. Right. Um, you know, th- there were there were a couple of macroeconomic things, as Peter says, throughout the summer. And the, the products that I think you, you've seen do well in the third quarter are those things that are essentially big bets on on large macroeconomic directions, things like interest rate swaps um, and currencies and that kind of thing. So this wasn't um, stock trading. Like, no, right, no, right, and actually, right, right. and it was not a. It has not been a great quarter for the banks that have reported so far on the equities side of things. Yeah, um, you know, Citi was down sharply. J.P. Morgan was about flat. Um, B of A was down. As B of A well. was down. So you know, all the gains have been on the bond trading side. And right. as Peter says, that's a much bigger. Uh, fee pile than than equities. Even in a good year, equities is is you know a, 
a third the size of of the the bond trading market, um, but but not a lot of good news there. Mm-hmm. And give us sort of a, an impact on the size of the trading, and sort of what Peter was getting into. It's about like a quarter, I think, of the revenue that J.P. Morgan generates, and it, and with Morgan Stanley and Goldman, it gets up closer to fifty percent of the revenue they're dra- generating. Yeah, Bond, you're talking about bonds, trading in no, general, just trading, yeah. trading in, general. in general. Right, right, right. Goldman gets about half its its revenues from trading. Yeah. Um, and that has it used to be much more tilted towards towards fixed income. It's yeah. it's moved a little bit. They're a little more equal now. Morgan Stanley is very strong on the equity side, uh, very weak on the fixed income yeah. side. Has tried for years to get that that going without a lot of success. Well, and 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 currencies were big in the quarter. We know that, right? There was a lot of action mm-hmm. there. And commodities something happened with the pound. I so think. they have with the pound. We've mentioned that once or twice. And commodities too. I mean, you had a lot of movement in in oil and other commodities. So that, the- that makes up the balance of it, right? And those should certainly play to Goldman's strength. I mean, they are um, at, at heart a fixed income trading shop, um, very strong, particularly in, in currencies and commodities. Um, CEO Lloyd Blankfein came out of that unit, so did his number two. It's something they care a lot about. They put a lot of resources into, and their trading. I'm sorry, their their overall performance, their revenue tends to kind of live or die by um, by trading and by fixed income. Yeah, but I guess what we still don't know, Paul, is whether this will be a one-off or not. So a lot of the events right. we were just talking about macroeconomic volatility, central bank moves, big swings in energy prices. All three of those things happened in the first quarter of 2015 when bank trading books were, you know, head through the roof. People were very excited that the rebound was here. You had the Swiss National Bank revalue. You had oil starting to come off its peak around that time. And what we saw in the second half of last year is just totally collapsed mm-hmm. and fixed income trading, you know, fell off a cliff. There were a lot of layoffs in places like Morgan Stanley and other places. And so I think investors and analysts really want to be sure that, you know, this is not just event-driven, that costs have been taken out of this business, that it's more sustainable before they really, um, you know, believe the narrative that you know, we found the bottom. I think one thing you've seen is a lot more focus on, on one-time events. There's a lot more talk about that on calls. Um, you know, on, on the downside, you say, well, can you repeat these events in the quarter? Is there going to be another Brexit? Probably not. Um, and even on the upside, you know, when people say, well, we, we're comparing to a good year last year, um, it was always seems to be a one-off event, right? Last year, the, uh, there were a bunch of hiccups uh, in Asia, which were either good or bad, depending on when they were. But I think you're, you're starting to see a lot of um, one-time events drive results, and that's unnerving mm-hmm. to investors across the board. Now, how does this sort of stack up? I mean, the second quarter was a decent quarter, too, for trading in, the, in terms of a rebound. So it's now, is it two quarters back-to-back now that they've had that have sort of been decent? Uh, I'd, I'd agree with you. They've been two decent quarters. The, the difficult thing for the banks is their first quarter was awful. Yeah. And the first quarter is generally the, the strongest quarter of the year. Yeah. So you can print, you know, the fourth quarter could be really good too, but we still might be down year on year because of that gap they're going to have to overcome for the first quarter. And, are there, and none of, the, I mean, the other thing too is so, this business has been so constrained regulatory. It's hard to see that this. The, the, this isn't uh, the decline isn't going to be here for a while or, or to stay. It's a secular decline instead of a secular decline, which has been the big question that we've heard talked about since you know the end of the financial crisis. Yeah, everyone's kind of been asking where the bottom is. Um, you know, around the crisis, you know, right before the crisis, banks made something in order of 150 billion dollars yeah. trading fixed income. You know, trailing 12 months, it's about 65. So, you know, everyone probably has their view on where it's going, but I don't think anyone thinks it'll be back at 150. And um, as Peter says, that is the single biggest source of fees out there. So, um, you know, it's behind a lot of the angst, I think, about sort of long-term profitability of banks. 
So, so this what we've seen so far out of these banks, Bank of America today and uh, J.P. Morgan City Wells the, the last week, gives us price a, a little idea into what we'll get later this week out of Goldman and Morgan, and we've touched on that a little bit. But what specifically are people thinking now for for Goldman and Morgan Stanley when they report later this week? Are people more optimistic? You know, you hear chatter. You know, what was. Yeah. What are the whisper numbers? <laughs> it, it looks good for Goldman, I would yeah. say. Probably a little bit more of a toss-up for Morgan Stanley, but for different reasons. Um, you know, Goldman, like I said, is is really a, a strong fixed-income trading franchise. Um, I think people generally expect them to get the same bump. Their stock has done quite well over the last you know week since JPM and Citi started reporting. Uh, if they don't, that'll be a, a source of a lot of, of hand-wringing, I think. Um, but, but for the most part, they're probably expected to be in line Morgan Stanley is a bit of a different story. They're quite strong in equities, which has been quiet for most people over the quarter. They're much weaker in fixed income. Uh, the big question there, you know, they've got, they're in the middle of this billion dollar cost cutting. People will be looking for an update there. Uh, and they have this huge wealth management franchise, which has been slowly right. but surely getting more and more profitable. Um, and investors want to see that margin kind of low to mid 20s. So that's, I think, the other, um, the other bogey they have to yeah. hit. Now, one of the questions I have is just looking forward out into the fourth quarter. We do have a few events that could, you know, be good for the trading uh, side of the, uh, the investment banking business. I mean, you have the presidential election sort of coming up, which mo- most people say should increase volatility. And then you also have the Fed in December. You know, they've indicated they've been setting the groundwork to raise rates. But, you know, who who knows at this point whether they will or won't? Um, and, you know, the, are, the, are people looking at those events as, you know, sort of as positives, perhaps, for trading this quarter? I think not just for trading, but for an overall results for banks yeah. uh, in general. So Bank of America CFO said today that among the many reasons M&A activity was, was slow in the third quarter is he thinks people are feeling some uncertainty around the election. Um, so if, when that goes away, maybe M&A will pick up if, if he's right about that. Second, when the Fed finally does decide to increase by 25 basis points, it's not just the trading desks of the banks that are going to have a good day. It's their entire loan books. So B of A, um, you know, again today disclosed that they could earn anywhere from roughly $800 million to $1.3 billion over the course of the 12 months following that first 25 basis point rate hike for the Fed. And that's they don't have to do anything, right? That just happens automatically. So the two events you mentioned, I think, good for trading, but probably just better for banks' overall performance in the And, and you, you look at bank shares. I mean, they've been tied for at least almost two years now to expectations of a Fed rate increase. You know, as they go up, the shares go up. As they go down, the shares fall. Yeah. And I think as we saw, um, you know, over the course of the summer, that definitely played out so far since the banks have reported third quarter numbers. You know, the stocks really haven't rallied that much. I think there is some of that skepticism, as we've been saying, on the trading side. When you see maybe gains driven by more sustainable economic trends, by more, you know, rate-driven increases like that, that's when you might see the shares take off as well. All right. Peter, Liz, I want to thank you both for coming in, talking to us today about this. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Paul. And, Grocer, we're doing the – everyone out there listening, come back because I'm telling you we're doing this Marmite segment. Kraus says she knows a place in her neighborhood that sells it. She's going to get it for us. It's not hard in the U.S. to get Marmite. I, I never even heard. I'm, I'm completely fascinated by this thing. I never even heard of it before. You should try it. It's terrible. <laughs> See, yeah, we want to have. I, I want to have a, a Marmite tasting segment on the podcast, and we can discuss forex and, and eat Marmite. Doesn't Do that it. sound great? Uh, yeah. I'll not be around for that episode. But you have you ever had it? Oh yeah.
Yeah, yeah. Paul, and you don't, and you're not pining. I'm, I'm you're not good. pining to be in the studio when we get the marmite. I'll, I'll stay far away. Wow. See, this is these are the moments I feel like when, when with the podcast with Paul because you're like when we talk about like Christmas, you know, shopping season. You're the only person who's gone to a mall. <laughs> you're the only person who hasn't. You know, it's good to have suburban uh, Paul. I, I, I guarantee I'm not the only person in America who hasn't had marmite or hasn't even no, heard of that's it what until I'm the saying. last week or so. Yeah. yeah. So for all my fellow non-Marmite eaters out there, I'm going to eat it for you. This is going to happen. Watch for it later this week. Until then, thank you for listening. We always appreciate your patronage, and we will talk to you soon. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.